You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our blue planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which protect 4,581 square miles. In addition to the four federal national marine sanctuaries in California that are managed by NOAA, uh, that we have habitat protection such as no oil and gas exploration for drilling, the state of California has a system of marine protected areas within the zero to three mile offshore mark of California. In 2012, California completed a science-based, stakeholder-driven process to designate 124 marine protected areas, also you may have heard the term MPAs, that cover 16% of state waters. And the network consists of areas that have various levels of protection and include some reserves that prohibit all take. Just as our nation's parks and wilderness areas protect special places on land, California's MPAs protect a wide variety, a wide array of habitat, species, and special places underwater in the state of California. So today, we're going to check in and find out how these MPAs are doing uh, since five years after the final implementation of this network up and down the coast. My guest, Cindy Dawson, works as the Marine Protected Area's lead policy advisor at the California Ocean Protection Council part of the California Natural Resources Agency. So I'm thrilled to welcome Cindy to KWMR. Welcome, Cindy. You're live on KWMR. Thanks, Jenny. It's great to be here today, and thanks for having this topic on your show. Because you're with the state of California, and I'm not sure many people are very familiar with the California Ocean Protection Council, can you just give us some background what the role of this council is for the state of California? Sure. So the California Ocean Protection Council was formed in 2004 with a piece of uh, legislation called the California Ocean Protection Act. And really uh, what that comes down to is legislators were really looking out on the horizon and thinking about ocean management and California's role in being a leader in coast and ocean protection and coordinated ocean management. And what the act basically said is they were looking to the horizon understanding that um, making coordinated decisions about our coast and oceans were getting con- increasingly more complex. And so they formed the California Ocean Protection Council in order to make sure that we have coordinated decision-making among state and our federal partners um, for coast and ocean decisions. So making sure that if the Department of Fish and Wildlife and state lands and coastal commissions and some of the other agencies that have jurisdictions or mandates that um, overlap on the coast that we were all making coordinated decisions. So the Ocean Protection Council itself um, is made up 
of some designated members that were in the legislation. So we have the chair, which is the Secretary for Natural Resources, which is John Laird currently. Um, we also have an assembly member in a Senate. Senator, we have two public members. Um, and then we also have the Secretary for the California Environmental Protection Agency. And then we have a rotating seat that rotates between the controller and lieutenant governor. And we, um, at the Ocean Protection Council, we staff the council itself. And then our executive director um, of the Ocean Protection Council, Deborah Halberstadt, also has a dual role as the deputy secretary for coast and ocean um, policy in California. So that's a direct line uh, through the Secretary of Natural Resources to the governor to make sure that we're having coordinated decisions both inside the council and then that those policy decisions cascade across agencies. Fantastic. I love that role of collaboration and integration and making sure everybody is well informed of what's going on. Do you know if other states, especially here on the West Coast, have protection councils like modeled after California's? So Oregon actually does have an Ocean Protection Council, but they actually serve a little bit of a different role. Um, they were created certainly in that coordination collaboration role, but they also had more of a focus on trying to leverage resources to bring resources um, into government to help them with coast and ocean management. Oregon actually has a system, um, which is different than a network. A network is usually designed to be ecologically connected. Um, in Oregon, they have five marine protected areas that were um, spread along their coastline. And they're actually on a similar trajectory as we are, um, but their Ocean Protection Council plays a little bit of a different role. Got it. So speaking of eco-connected, it's been a long haul to complete the implementation of the MPAs throughout the state of California. And it's been five years since the final ones went into effect on the North Coast. What have been the priority activities post-implementation by the state of California in terms of the, the steps after the final implementation? Well, I would say that, um, you know, the, the primary focus has been to um, create a transparent and very robust marine protected area management program. So there was a long process to designate and design that was rooted in science and uh, stakeholder-driven. And then um, if you look at the literature, in order for any MPA to be successful, but certainly a network of the scale and scope that we have in California, you have to have a robust management system. So the focus has been to form a management system, and we have one in California that has four focal areas. Um, we have outreach and education, enforcement and compliance, research and monitoring, and policy and permitting. And I would say out the gate, a lot of focus went into the outreach and education and research and monitoring. And I can talk a little bit about what we did in each of those areas. Um, so for outreach and education, you know, we needed to get the word out to ocean users in the ocean community um, that these marine protected areas were going in and they were being implemented. And then also telling the public about why you would choose to use this marine management tool and some of the ecosystem-based goals of the Marine Life Protection Act, which was the legislation that was um, the, the reason that we had um, a network, a redesigned network. So um, in, the, in the research and monitoring space, um, we, upon implementation, 
we invested over $16 million coastwide to collect baseline information so that we were able, we're going to be able to track change over time. So across the ecosystems, different habitats, say on beaches, intertidal, subtidal, deeper reef, um, we actually put $4 million in each region, the north, the north central, central and south, to do very comprehensive study to determine what was happening at the time this management tool went into effect. And that's going to allow us, we did that both inside MPAs and outside in similar reference areas. So what that's going to allow us to do over time is see if the MPA, if the systems inside the MPAs act any differently than the systems outside of MPAs. Can I ask a quick question about that? So I understand during the time of starting this baseline monitoring, we were experiencing some pretty weird events that were pretty out of, or out of the ordinary with this extreme warm water event. How do you establish baseline during a pretty odd situation in terms of the conditions in the water at the time? So that's a great question, and actually we were just up on the North Coast um, last week sharing with the community the results of the baseline monitoring up there since the North Coast was the last region to go into implementation. And when we use that word baseline, it, it seems like it would be a really strange thing to call baseline when we know we had anomalous conditions that hadn't been seen in a lot of places ever, um, both in duration and amplitude, so how, how extreme they were and how long they lasted. But what's really interesting about trying to determine the effectiveness of MPAs is that the around the globe, how people do that is they monitor inside an MPA and outside an MPA, and they track change over time. So even if that first dot on your graph that you're going to track through time um, happened in a year that wasn't like other years, both inside the MPA and outside the MPA experienced those conditions. And what we're trying to determine in the state and really around the world, people are trying to determine the effectiveness of MPAs, is if you remove or reduce fishing in a certain area, how does that change the ecosystem? So because both inside and outside the MPA experience those anomalous conditions, we're still going to be able to hopefully disentangle if the MPA is acting differently as they recover or they uh, move into maybe this different state of being. Um, we're going to be able to see if the MPA does that in the same way that the areas outside the MPA does. So um, although it seems like it's not a great plan, I think we're actually set up in really good shape to try to figure out what these things are doing moving, moving into the future. So more of a long-term thing. Well, absolutely. You know, in temperate ecosystems, we know from the data we have from around the world, but also from our own marine protected areas, that it takes a while. A lot of temperate species um, live quite a long time. And so we do have some data from the northern Channel Islands that actually went into effect in 2003. And from the reserves there, Dr. Jen Cassell, um, part of UC Santa Barbara and the Partnership for Interdisciplinary Studies of Coastal Oceans, or PISCO, uh, they did some work in the northern Channel Islands, and after 10 years, they actually saw just in that amount of time um, that the, the species, especially the fish species inside the marine protected areas, were uh, there were much more of them, as well as they were larger. And so um, we also have data, similar data from Rick Starr's work up at Point Lobos, um, and that 
MPA has actually been in effect since the 70s. And so we know as the water, as you move up the state and the water gets colder and the species are a little bit more long-lived, it's probably going to take us a a while to see an MPA effect um, either way. Right. So you talked about education outreach, uh, baseline monitoring, enforcement. Mm-hmm. What were what's some of the ways up, uh, the MPAs are enforced? Well, the Department of Fish and Wildlife um, has the main management authority and enforcement authority for the marine protected areas. Um, state parks also does play a role in that. And so, um, again, if you go to the literature, a big part of having successful enforcement is having actually very robust outreach. And so we've had some projects that um, we're in the process of actually having a second round of signs um, put out statewide, um, letting people know the regulations, you are here signs, um, brochures um, that people can pick up at bait shops to know when, what they can and can't do where. Um, As far as the on the ground enforcement, that's wildlife officers from the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And we work with them pretty regularly um, to look for um, all kinds of ways to maximize the resources that we have, which includes um, a records management system so things are computerized so that they can identify hot spots and deploy resources accordingly. Um, we also work um, to um, with the wardens to help make sure that their boats are good, in good working order so they can get out on the water. And then we're also in the process of working with state parks to figure out how we can support um, their rangers in enforcing marine protected area um, regulations throughout the state. So uh, again, for the MPAs to be successful on the ecological side, we have to have this robust management on, on the enforcement and the outreach and all those other components. To, to make sure we can be successful on the ecological side. So the MPAs are, that is a very broad term. There's so many different types of marine protected areas, including sanctuaries. The, the network that's been set up have four different types. There's the state marine reserve, state marine conservation area, state marine recreational management area, and special closures. Is there any difference in terms of how these are monitored over time or how different um, priority area priority management goes towards each of these? And can maybe can you just briefly describe the difference between each of these designations? Yes. So um, the Marine Managed Areas Improvement Act is sort of what kicked all of this off in 1999, and that was before the Marine Life Protection Act. And what that Marine Managed Area Improvement Act did is in the state at the time, I can't remember the exact number, but there were well over 30 different kinds of protection designations in the marine environment. And obviously that was very confusing to ocean users. It was very confusing to agencies. And so what that act did is basically cut it down to the list that you just um, went over. And really when you talk about state marine protected areas, um, the, the easiest one to pull out is a state marine reserve. And that is known and kind of colloquially colloquially as a no-take reserve, meaning that um, you can dive and swim and boat, but you can't take any resources. So you can't take any shells, any geological, any cultural or living resource out of that area. So that's a no-take reserve. Um, We also have state marine conservation areas, and it's, those are the, the easiest way to think about those is that 
um, they allow some types of fishing, um, but they are location-specific. So each state marine um, conservation area can have different regulations. So, for instance, maybe during the process, um, you know, stakeholders said it was really important for us to be able to fish salmon here. Um, And salmon are kind of a transient species that move in and out of MPAs. They don't really spend a lot of their time in MPAs. So a state marine conservation area could maybe allow for salmon fishing, but would preclude fishing on the bottom or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think the easiest way to think about California's network is really we kind of have two types. We have one where you're, which is a reserve, which is a no-take, and then we have these conservation areas um, with rules of different rules about take, and that's based on the location and it was and part of the design recommendations. And um, the Smyrmas, the state marine uh, recreational areas, um, state marine parks, they really are just kind of a type of state marine conservation area. So for simplicity, I would just think of two California's network having two really main types is that reserve and then that location specific um, take of a conservation area. So like a recreational management area may not have regulations regarding take in them? No, they, they do. Absolutely. Um, a lot of them actually um, were, are, uh, have waterfowl hunting. So they have recreational, rec- um, regulations specifically for that type of take, but they actually may preclude all type of sort of marine, under-the-water marine life take. Um, It's very uh, MPA-specific as far as those go. Got it. Basically, four different types of reserves. Which one of these do you think are the hardest for people to understand in terms of getting what they can and can't do? Or what's been the hardest from the enforcement angle so far? Well, I think that's certainly the conservation areas are more of a challenge. Um, Well, I I think just across the board to um, scientifically um, to enforce and um, also for just for the public. But they play an incredibly important role within the network. And so there's certainly a reason why they were there. One of the directives from the Marine Life Protection Act is that um, this network is to be used as a living laboratory to help us better understand how the ocean works, not just for adaptive management for the marine protected areas, but also to help us in the state understand other priorities like sustainable fisheries, climate impacts. And so having different levels of protection, which is what the state marine conservation areas do, sprinkled in with reserves, which are no-take, is really important scientifically to help us understand just how ecosystems respond to different management actions. Um, So they're they're a really important part of the network, um, but they're also a a little bit a part that people, you know, we've had to work a little harder to make sure that people understand what they can and can't do where. Mm -hmm. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Cindy Dawson. And she is the lead policy advisor at the California Ocean Protection Council regarding marine protected areas. So there was a lot of mixed emotions by ocean users about the MPAs during the, uh, the process that was very transparent and very open. There were a lot of meetings. What do you think the perception of them is now? Well, you know, I, I think that, 
it's it's variable, certainly. Um, you know, we are a huge state. We have over 1,100 miles of coastline. Um, you know, one of the things that the baseline monitoring did, um, which we're just wrapping up now, um, is that we went on uh, listening tours and had community meetings in each region, um, and we really reached out to consumptive users or fishermen who were most affected by these marine protected areas to make sure they understand that the state was doing what we said we were going to do, which is we were going to put these in and we were going to monitor them to see what the effects of an MPA network are. And, you know, I, I would say just generally speaking, um, you know, I think it's it's kind of nuanced. I think there are a lot of fishermen, both on the recreational and commercial side, um, that certainly had really big fears about these um, really affecting their ability um, to fish. And um, I think some of those fears over time have been assuaged by the science because one of the main components in each of the regions for the baseline was socioeconomic studies. So there were socioeconomic studies of um, the fishermen sort of revenue streams, how they run their business, also on recreational fishermen, um, about how many trips a year they do, um, and those kind of things. And, you know, generally speaking, we haven't really seen any negative impacts from the MPAs. That said, it's still early days, and the state is committed to continuing that socioeconomic work. In fact, we just really we just closed um, a call for proposals on the 3rd of November to um, have scientists help design ongoing monitoring for socioeconomics across the state. So it's something we're committed to doing, and I think it's a huge component um, of, of continuing to communicate with the ocean users, expect, especially consumptive users, um, to make sure that it's really transparent and they can see what these are doing and they can make their mind up for themselves. Along those lines, the state acknowledges the role of traditional knowledge quite a bit uh, throughout the MPA network. How does the state work with Native American tribes in California um, through this process? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I just got back from the North Coast uh, last, the end of last week, and the North Coast was actually the first region in the baseline where we, the state funded a traditional ecological knowledge project. Um, it was actually uh, not sure the exact number, but I know it was over 15 different tribes took part. Um, They did archival research and research with elders to identify species of importance for them, um, and then also their perceptions of how um, the health of those species um, has changed over time. So really exciting project and um, something that the state obviously is very much committed to. So um, we have participation from tribes um, in the local marine protected area collaboratives. And uh, those are groups um, that are roughly associated, it's 14 groups that are roughly associated with coastal counties that bring together city government, tribal government, local, state, and federal agency staff that are on the ground locally and community members um, to help, uh, help the state make sure that we're not missing anything and that we have local priorities um, funneled up as we're making these statewide plans. And so we have tribal participation on those. Um, We're also in the um, process of getting tribes nominated to the MPA statewide leadership team, which is a coordinating body up in Sacramento that has 
12 state and federal agencies um, on that to make sure, again, we're making coordinated decisions about MPA management. So, um, you know, it's something we've definitely put some energy into and we're committed for the long haul because of the scale and scope of the MPAs, you know, for us to be successful and them to meet their ecological goals, we have to have partners. And, you know, the tribes um, have been here longer than anybody, so they're, they're a key partner for us to be successful. What are some of the projects these MPA collaboratives are doing? I've heard about uh, the one based out of Bodega Bay, and maybe that's the North Central one. I'm not so sure. But what are some of the activities these MPA collaboratives are doing? Because it seems like they're a real link to the local community in terms of people who live there, but also people who work with people that um, come here to use these waters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they they really are um critical to the MPA management program. So they're they're roughly county based. The Bodega one is probably the Sonoma collaborative. Um, and they have had a lot of focus on outreach and education. Again, you know, we have over 1,100 miles of coastline. And so they've been on the ground and they were the first ones to really um, help us identify the the need for signs, the need for brochures, and certain kinds of signs and certain kinds of brochures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the state from the very beginning had had been putting out um, educational material, but what the collaboratives bring that is really invaluable to the state is that local perspective of how the local community wants uh, to receive information and also to make sure that the local community priorities are part of the discussion at the statewide planning level so that we're not missing those on-the-ground knowledge, voices, and expertise, um, and we're making sure to um, leverage that knowledge and, and make sure that we're the resources that we have, that we're investing them very wisely and meeting the needs of the communities that um, are right alongside these MPAs. So um, they have... I've mentioned signs and brochures. They've also made videos, um, educational videos that some groups like San Luis Obispo have got on sort of those hotel TVs that run a loop when you walk into a hotel. They have MPA videos on down there. Um, The Golden Gate Collaborative has done this MPA ambassador program where um, people – taking people out on the bay, go through a little bit of a training so they can talk about MPAs to their customers or kayak um, groups that rent kayaks, those kind of things. So they really are um, a huge part of us getting the word out and helping people understand why these MPAs are out there and what they can, um, how they are part of the ecosystem and our, our management in California. That's great. It's great to hear all these different levels of leadership collaboration and community collaboration and uh, bringing in all groups of people into the ongoing conversation. This is an ongoing network for the future. So the more people involved, the better. We just have a couple minutes left. And because there are so many different tools and publications out, what tools or resources would you recommend people checking out to to find out? Suppose they are going fishing and What's the number one place they should absolutely check to make sure they know what's going on before they head out to a certain place? 
So the best place, um, and the department has done some work to make this really accessible, is the Department of Fish and Wildlife um, web webpage, which is wildlife.ca.gov, um, and you should be able to, I think one of the main tabs on there says um, marine protected areas. So that is going to have the latest regulatory information. Um, they also have an app um, that has um a California MPA app that has those regulations, um, but I would say the the Department of Fish and Wildlife's website is the f- the first stop to go to um, to make sure that you have the latest regulations because you know part of the MPA network was in adaptive management and you know although it's going to take us a little while to figure out exactly what these MPAs are doing ecologically, even in the short period the network has been established, um, we've made small changes to the regulations to make it clearer for boaters when you're inside and outside uh, making the GPS markers clear. So um, that's one place. I would also go to oceanspaces.org, and that is a place that you can check out all the latest and greatest science um, in some really accessible formats, and uh, those are great places to go check out um, what's happening with your MPA network. That's great. Thank you so much, Cindy. This is awesome. I feel like I'm a little bit more aware of what's going on in terms of the intricacy of continuing this network and monitoring it and making sure that the ecological outcomes are the best that possibly can be. Uh, it's such a dynamic time in the ocean right now, and it's 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 kind of cool to realize there's this opportunity to study these areas, too, to see when we take off some pressure of certain areas, how will they respond to these uh, big changes that we're seeing with warming and acidification and all these odd harmful algal blooms and whatnot. So thanks for your good work, and thanks for sharing all this information today about the state MPAs. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me, and um, make sure you and your listeners check out those web resources because we got lots of information coming in every day um, about your MPAs, and uh, we need you to be informed and active so um, we can see what these things do in the future. Thank you, Cindy. Have a great afternoon. Okay, you as well. Thank you. Bye. We've been talking with Cindy Dawson from the California Ocean Protection Council, and she's the lead policy advisor for everything about the state MPAs. And it's great to hear kind of an overview. It's been five years since the last one was put into place in this network up and down the coast of northern and southern California. And a lot of different types of monitoring are happening. Socioeconomic studies are happening. And it's a really good opportunity to learn about how communities Um, evolve as we try to protect some of these really important special habitats and species along the coast in state waters. So check out wildlife.ca.gov for more information online, oceanspaces.org. And there is an app about the California MPAs too, if you happen to be wanting to go out uh, fishing. It's important to know these things before you head out. We're going to take a short break. This is KWMR and Point Race Station. You're listening to Ocean Currents.
last but not least, we always have a very full episode here on Ocean Currents where every minute counts. And I would like to just say thank you to Liz Fox for producing Positively Ocean. She's a volunteer, and she works um, out of Berkeley producing a story every month about featuring a positive story about the ocean. So stay tuned here for Positively Ocean, produced by Liz Fox. Hi, this is Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. I'm Liz Fox. Typically, this segment is all about the people who work to improve the ocean. But this story is different. It's about how the ocean can help us. Last month, wildfires devastated families, incinerated neighborhoods, and rocked communities to their core across Northern California. The devastation in many cases was complete. Lives lost, houses leveled, and businesses burned. While firefighters squelched the last flames a few weeks ago, first responders took their first breaks, park rangers coordinated social services, and families whose lives were on hold made their way to Doran Beach on the Sonoma coast. They all knew inherently that the ocean could help them reset. And as people pick up the fractured pieces of their lives and begin their after-the-fire chapter, the ocean can tend to them wave after wave after wave. Tara Carpenter works at the Cal Fire Air Base, where she spent the previous 11 days mixing water and powdered flame retardant and then filling the air tankers that dispersed it. Uh, This was the first thing that I was looking forward to when I got a day off. This is my first day off, so this is exactly what I wanted to do. Carpenter grew up in Bodega Bay, where her family works in commercial fishing. Recently, she's taken up poke polling as a hobby. With a long bamboo garden stake, she prodded cabezón from tide pools and crevices with a very zen goal. Sometimes I just come out here to not even the hopes of catching, but just relax. You know, it, it's very relaxing. And science backs up what Carpenter and her family know from generations of ocean experience. In his book, Blue Mind, marine scientist and writer Wallace J. Nichols dissects the combination of the ocean's elements and their impact on our brains and bodies. The full sensory experience of being in, near, or on water calms and resets people's ability to cope with stress. The ocean really is medicine. makes uh, our bodies and our minds uh, work better. There's an important role not just in the immediate urgency and sort of aftermath of trauma and disaster. There's that role of the ocean and in our waters, but it should have a long tail. I think there's also a role in sort of returning regularly and re- hitting that reset button because the, the work that comes after any kind of loss and trauma uh, is, is hard. It's, it's relentless. It, it's, it requires creativity, and a lot of attention. During the crisis, Sonoma County and California state parks recognized people's need to be near the ocean. They waived fees, connected evacuees with in-town services, and shuffled non-emergency reservations. Chris Troutner, a park aide at both park systems, was stationed at the Duran Beach kiosk. It can just be 20 cars deep of a line. You know, If I see kids in the back with masks on, I just wave them through immediately and just tell them, hey, we're just going to do what we can to get you in there and get you somewhere that's a little bit easier to breathe. Troutner said the ocean was a safe, familiar place for people who are able to escape the flames or smoke in their RVs or campers. I think when you have to go to a shelter, it kind of adds to the 
the harshness of the reality of your situation, you know, to stay in an auditorium on cots. Coming out to a campground, you know, especially if you have young kids, it can just be like going on a vacation, especially if they've come here before, it's somewhere familiar. While the parks offer temporary places to stay, the ocean will continue to calm those who seek it in the long run. And surprising transformations can continue to happen at the ocean. Nichols describes in his book when groups of struggling veterans participated in surf therapy sessions and learned about ocean conservation, many found new meaning in life by becoming ocean advocates. Nichols said people in Northern California can apply the same concepts to their recovery. And that may seem unusual in the face of such loss to say, well, you should give back, but getting out of yourself and your own loss and putting yourself in a position of service and purpose is one of the best ways to get through this kind of trauma. So the ocean needs us, we need it, and making that connection if it's been been a while is a really good idea. And, and then taking somebody with you is a really good idea. And that's an example of the ocean doing right by us. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio and KWMR, this is Liz Fox reporting in Bodega Bay, California. Thank you, Liz Fox, for producing another highly relevant topic of Positively Ocean and still very raw in our hearts up here in the North Bay. Um, I can definitely account for the role of the ocean for calming us quite a bit. I was out here in West Marin during those fires and meeting a lot of people that were fleeing to the ocean that specific day. And it was really interesting interacting with people and really important to be near the water. So thank you again, Liz, for producing Positively Ocean. Well, we're at the end of the show, and Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month, 1 to 2, and you can hear past episodes through the podcast, which is available at cordellbank.noaa.gov. And Ocean Currents has a Twitter feed. You can follow at OceanKWMR to get info about this program and supporting links on the web about each show and topics we cover on this show. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov or tweet at OceanKWMR. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the Ocean Bay or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin KWMR. for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.